0: enterprise we might have a problem huh. uh computer and program never mind he's it and from the future let's get our friend home before the altars the timeline record what are you doing um i feel like i'm trying to stop a toddler from knocking over the furniture ah! oh hell yeah one time traveler is a security threat two is
1: a disaster i you said they were cool they are this is serious
0: For complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton coming in on a smaller jetpack. And we're here this week to tackle, I guess, probably the most awaited Star Trek episode in a long, long time. The Strange New Worlds Lower Decks crossover episode, Those Old Scientists, which premiered at San Diego Comic-Con this week. We're going to talk about the episode, and later on we'll talk about some of the other Trek news that came out of that Comic-Con. But Tyler, this episode, we've heard it hyped at conventions now for, I guess, since last summer. What were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, you know what? I, I think there are so many ways this could have gone, and I cannot praise enough the performance of both Jack Quaid and Tondi Newsom for being able mm-hmm. to kind of transport these cartoon characters into this universe and actually make it believable. And I, I just want to, like, highlight Jack Quaid's mannerisms, his physical mannerisms, which resemble so much the animated boiler that we're familiar with, but it doesn't look like they are... From a different universe here, like he totally fits into this universe, and I, I, I was just, I was blown away by Jack Quaid, what he was doing here, and this was a fun, <laughs> this is a fun episode of Star Trek, um, and it made me realize that Strange New Worlds has been at its peak this season when it's been a little bit lighter on its toes, you know, the the heavier episodes haven't been, you know, working for me so much as, you know, say Lotus Eaters wasn't maybe a highlight, uh, the same way as Charades was, for example. Um, last week's episode, Lost in Translation, was a bit of a heavier episode. And I love coming back to Those Old Scientists, which was legit, like one of the funniest Star Trek episodes I've ever seen. I think it was a tall task, trying to get the rhythms right. And it worked for me. And I absolutely loved it. What, what, what's your overall uh, takeaway?
0: I think this was something of a miracle of an episode because when they announced this, I I really did think like, boy, that is going to be very tough to pull off because just the energies of the two shows are so different. And to try to recreate, as you were saying, kind of like the, the mannerisms and the rhythms of Lower Decks on Strange New Worlds, I just thought it would be... So it could just be an absolute train wreck. One that you're, you know, you know it's going to look great because they're going to have the animation of Lower Decks and then the production design of Strange New Worlds. But I just thought like the ability to bring these characters together, I thought was phenomenal. And I thought like Jack Quaid, yeah, he had like the bigger role in this episode. The ability he had to make me think of animated boimler every second he was on screen in live action like it never felt distracting i never felt like i was watching an actor in a you know in a wig basically trying to be a cartoon character it just felt like boimler and the way he was able to pull off the patented boimler scream you know that hilarious scream (laughs) we get to see so often on lower decks and make that feel like part of a real physical world i i was like wow like hats off to that guy and like this entire episode Initially, I was kind of, like, wondering, was this too, like, minor a story for these characters? Like, should we have done something maybe a little more ambitious, like a Trials and Tribulations? But then I was, like, honestly, what I liked about this episode the most was just hanging out with different sets of characters. The way they introduced both of these, you know, Lower Decks characters onto the ship. And we just spent time watching them hang out with different characters at a time. That was kind of the joy of the episode. I don't know, I guess, in retrospect, like, maybe I was just, like, silly to, like want to see or even think it was a good idea to ponder, you know, some, like, bigger plot-driven story. That probably would have been working against what made this episode so charming.
1: I'm somebody that—the stakes—I need I need to be invested in the stakes, and they don't need to be big stakes at all. Like, I, I think about a show like Freaks and Geeks. You know, all, all the stakes were pretty small. It was, you know— Uh, am I going to cheat on this test or else I'm going to like fail this class? You know, am I going to be able to get the nerves to ask somebody to dance with me at the dance? You know, those are small stakes. I'm invested in those stakes here. So this is pretty much like, how do we get these time travelers back home? Relatively small stakes. It wasn't as if, um, they were, uh, you know, stealing tricorders and pads like Rasmussen did in, uh, the next generation (laughs) episode, you know, where, uh, oh no, um, he's going to be reverse engineering and then making himself rich. Uh, you know i I, but like you said like just the hangout factor here worked so well although it was disturbing to see as (laughs) boimler and laon were uh, walking down the corridor the uh (laughs) the height difference between those two performers it was absolutely (laughs) hilarious i did not realize how tall like i i I can understand that um uh, christina chong is like diminutive but i had no idea like Jack Quaid was just as tall as he was but um and I'm sorry the ability to get that shot of Boiler leaning in on the saddle and geeking out at the sight of Uhura without me just like blowing my lid thinking like oh they've crossed the Rubicon here I I can no longer suspend my uh my disbelief here I I was still like absolutely invested while laughing at it and there's another Jack Quaid physicality moment here where he's like, okay, what if you guys all just turn around on the bridge and I'll be able to figure out where the uh, scout ship is? And it's when he's laying on the ground and he's got like one foot like kind of hovering over the ground. And I'm like, that is the boiler that we know, but it's also occupying like an universe that I can believe in what he's existing here in Strange New World. So, I mean, I don't know.
0: Jack Quaid is the MVP for me in this episode here. It's the type of performance that you know, it's not going to get awards, it's not going to get, you know, showered with recognition really outside of Trek circles, but it's so difficult. And I remember just, like, reading about, for example, um, Bob Hoskins doing Roger Rabbit and how unbelievably tough it was for him. And he said it was, like, one of the most difficult acting jobs of his life. And I look at what Jack Quaid is doing here of trying to approximate a very, like, elastic cartoon character without ever going into, like, Jim Carrey, like, you know, really, like, physical exaggeration, just to, like, evoke it through little bits of business, like you said, you know, like, getting under the console and doing that work in that moment there. It just felt, like, so organic. And I started this episode thinking, like, this is just a one-time thing. This may not work out so hot. Let, <laughs> let's just see how this goes. But by the end of the episode, I was like, they have to do this again, right? Like, they have to. Yeah, they're going to bring back Shatner from the animated series. <laughs> Well, I mean, hey, I would be down for that, but I mean, to me, it just seems like it would be so fun to like, I'm not saying we do this every season, but like at some point to do another Lower Decks crossover, and I don't know, even if you just had like Strange New Worlds characters pop up on the animated show, I think that could be fun. Like, it just seems like these worlds mesh together so well that it seems like they would be a fun part of the overall fabric of this series.
1: Yeah, but it's none of the main characters that come around in the next Strange New Worlds crossover episode. It's going to be uh, Richard Kind, who played the Dupler in uh, uh, in Lower (laughs) Decks. He's the only one that crosses over into the Strange New Worlds uh, timeline.
0: It would be amazing, actually, now that I think about it, uh, if they did a return at some point. And I love that this episode just ended and I'm already plotting a return. But, like, um, if you had Boimler and Mariner show up on Strange New Worlds again... And you introduce, like, some of those aliens that are really, really kind of, like, suited to animation in live action. I think that could actually be pretty fun.
1: I am okay with the idea of never having another crossover. And that's, like, mm-hmm. the the pressure would be on to top this. And I don't know how you top this without raising the stakes a whole lot more and that's where you can get into, say, some discovery territory or Picard territory where the stakes always seem to be, I don't know, the, the end of the universe or you know, the destruction right. of the Enterprise. And I'm like, you know what? I'm okay with this just being unspoiled uh, as it is here. And I also want to point out um, there are some like pretty deep Moments, like moments with pathos, you know. I I, I mean, well, <laughs> Boimler's reaction to Spock's laughter and Spock's very, very creepy <laughs> smile. Um, <laughs> with the zoom. <laughs> and then him confronting, like, Christine. And, and, well, I should say more like confiding in, in Nurse Chapel about Spock's laugh. And the unintended consequences that Boimler's confiding has upon Christine's state of mind about what this relationship means mm-hmm. because obviously when Boimler's explaining that the Spock that history knows is someone who never laughed that somebody who is always super serious and she's like well maybe he's experimenting and it's her own realization like maybe this is going to be kind of a short-lived thing between the two of them yeah. and it actually I do like the fact that maybe they are kind of setting up why it's more of an unrequited love Like moving forward or maybe a little bit more than just a crush when you move forward into the original series timeline there that that, um, Christine has more for Spock versus he's clearly not feeling that same way anymore.
0: I was genuinely surprised that they introduced that kind of material into this episode. I really thought this was going to be just kind of like the hijinks episode and hey it could be amazing who knows but i really didn't think we would have like these kinds of emotional beats and i thought yeah that scene between boimler and chapel was perfect and like perfectly realized in in communicating what the future of spock is and yeah i'm really curious how this kind of like plants seeds in chapel's head and how this could pay off in future episodes i really did think this would be more of like just kind of a standalone thing whereas now i can see the potential to have little bits of information You know, that came across in this episode, pay off in the future. That was a surprise. And even like a moment of having Mariner sit with Uhura and talk about like how inspiring Uhura is, and Uhura just being like, I'm a 22 year old, you know, I'm a workaholic, and I'm always, you know, nervous or anxious. And like, what a wonderful moment where it is very much like, you know, Mariner through, you know, and Tawny Newsom talking about like what an inspirational figure Uhura is and how much she matters. And then having Celia Rose Gooding just play that scene so perfectly. I just really enjoyed that this episode didn't just like kind of look at it on paper and say, okay, that's a comedy show. We're making a comedy episode. It felt like they were like, yes, we have to have the injection of kind of the Lower Decks brand comedy. But what about the emotions that could like come from this visit? That's not something I ever thought they would have delved into.
1: Well, it's it's what drama is
0: supposed to be here.
1: You know, it's kind of the conflict and emotional consequences are being paid off in pretty short order from two episodes ago when Christine and Spock, you know, got together, it felt organic and it felt earned and and it's carrying on as you're saying kind of Uhura's arc since I guess season one, although we do know ultimately by the time we get to the original series, Uhura doesn't seem to have such a stick up her butt anymore. Like she's, yeah, definitely loosened up a lot more by then. So I guess we can look forward to that. But I would say like Hora hasn't been nearly as fulfilling a character to watch this season as she was, as we saw her kind of growing in the first season. Now it's just kind of like she's always stressed out. Uh, she's not having fun. It just like it's not nearly as much fun to check in with her as it was, I'd say, in season one.
0: Well, it's also just like kind of strange and that we've really only had two episodes that genuinely paid attention to her she had moments leading up to last week's episode and then this episode but before that i can recall some like standout scenes but it never felt like they were delving into where Ahura actually was like emotionally and career-wise these last two have really been the episodes to solidify that so i i'm hoping now that they've done that that we get a little more payoff before the end of the season. It's not like, okay, and now we can move on to some other character, you know, because we've only got, like, three episodes left. Yeah. So, uh,
1: look, there are uh, many, many uh, very specific uh, references they, they made note of here uh, in this one. But I, I also want to bring kind of attention to the fact that we got a lot more of Ants and mounts here mm-hmm. than we have, and, you know, I'd say all but one episode so far this season and just his presence especially with boymore's like adoration for this character um there's that you know it's an obvious moment the one in which um they uh are are uh, and mariner are brought to pike's kitchen and <laughs> you know like the the whole deal with him alluding to them that he is aware of his fate i thought it was very interesting especially since they didn't quite explicitly you know, that he didn't quite explicitly lay out that he knew where he was going to go. And clearly, Boiler and Mariner do that. But it was interesting how they kind of scratched the surface there. But they also made it about, you know, his own, I, I guess, relationship with his father and and why things might make sense for him to be opening up to his crew. Like, he, he is kind of the uh, the dad figure. And for him mm-hmm. to have those own issues with his father and realizing, you know, maybe... Maybe I should be uh,
0: more open with my friends. You know, Jean-Luc Picard, he is not. Yeah. There was a lot of dead energy coming off of Pike in this episode. A lot. Uh, <laughs> the exasperation he had throughout this episode in responding to Boimler primarily, but Mariner later, uh, reminded me a lot of the Kirk performance in Trouble with Tribbles, where <laughs> in that one it's the like lousy assignment and just Kirk getting consistently flustered throughout, and Anson Mount was just killing it, like, playing this very, like, kind of, like, annoyed, but more just, like, exasperated father figure throughout the episode. And when they were brought into his quarters, and he was, like, taking off the apron and being like, (laughs) okay, leave them with me, I was like, dad is about to scold them. And I I thought it was noteworthy that we had this whole discussion about his birthday and him saying, you know, this is the first year he's, like, a year older than his father. Uh... It reminded me a lot of, actually, Star Trek Beyond, where that was a big part of the Kirk journey uh, early in that film as well, resolving the fact that his father had been killed, uh, you know, the Chris Hemsworth, uh, George Kirk, at the, uh, the Kelvin destruction. Um, interesting that they would kind of have a similar journey there tied to captains and birthdays i mean star trek loves its daddy issues um but i guess in this universe the kelvin verse is different or it doesn't really this we're on the prime timeline here not the kelvin verse so maybe uh, pike is the one who had a similar kind of journey as opposed to kirk
1: yeah i definitely got the uh, the beyond vibes uh, with regards to that as well you know i, I i'm C- can we have like a captain that doesn't have like daddy issues you know i guess you know cisco Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, both cisco's uh, Jake and Ben, but even Archer, he had kind of the issues with, uh, his father not being able to see Warp 5 go ahead. Of course, Picard did. And, um, we had that really terrible episode of Voyager in which, uh, we have the kind of some sort of alien manifesting like, uh, memories of Janeway's Admiral father. I was just like, eh, you know, yeah. It, it, it's kind of a, a, a trope with Star Trek at this point. And, um, of course, uh, I don't know. Uh, 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 Michael Burnham's father was portrayed by uh, her real life husband, which is uh, Uh a little interesting. Is that a daddy (laughs) issue?
0: I don't know. Um, Yeah. I guess Prime Kirk didn't have those sorts of issues. That was more of a Kelvinverse introduction. True, True. So, yeah, we didn't have to deal with that so much. I mean, we had him losing a son. So I guess he has a daddy issue in being a father, but not about his own father. Okay. Well,
1: uh, I, I did bring up the uh, the NXO one, or at least Archer. There, I I thought they were priming us up for an nx one cameo. <laughs> I was a little bummed out. Instead, I I thought the uh, the Heronium solution, uh, look, it was kind of convenient. But to me, that's that's not the whole point of the episode. So I, I I can I can look beyond that, but I can't help but notice. You know, like obviously Pellia was a little annoyed by this. But throughout this entire episode, Boimler is going to all of the characters saying like oh my god you're a war hero oh my you like grapplers too this is amazing no uh, oh, he couldn't even speak to uh una cuz like he he's literally got her as like a uh, a poster in like his locker there um he was gushing over every single main character um except for commander pelia there's no words <laughs> of adoration <laughs> um
0: what are you implying tyler
1: <laughs> well you know how i said that um jack quaid and uh, tawny Newsom were really great at translating uh themselves into the star trek universe I-, I i hear there have been complaints about carol kane's
0: uh performance and her ability to uh, translate herself into this star trek universe you gotta admit though she would translate onto lower decks very very easily <laughs>
1: <laughs> that is, you know, what? that is a very good point. Maybe that's what Carol Kane thought she was getting into during that audition,
0: and she just did not uh, adjust her performance after uh, finding out the truth. Well, she said that she was not familiar with Star Trek when she got the job. Like, maybe her research was like turning on an episode of Lower Decks and being like, okay, got it. <laughs> that's what I got to do. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it is her research was watching Galaxy Quest by mistake. <laughs> She clearly was not watching the original animated series because she would have been a lot more sedated if she had have been. <laughs> Very true. Um, I have to comment on Uhura's taste
1: in film. Um, she wanted to watch an Andorian comedy. And I'm like, well, between Hammer and Shran, it should be a real hoot. <laughs> um, no Buster Keaton, uh, based on kind of the Discovery crew
0: preferences there. I was kind of like leaning forward at that point because I'm like, oh, what like movie are they going to name? Because it's so much fun when they drop like I don't know, Rosemary's Baby or something like that on uh, Enterprise, and I was like, oh, give me something good. And then they said Andorian comedy, and I'm like,
1: yeah,
0: that sounds a little generic. She couldn't have thrown a name out there at least. Yeah,
1: well, the one that okay, the, the film that this entire episode reminded me most of, though, uh, like like I I know Woody Allen, uh, he's canceled, rightfully rightfully so. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. Sorry, I, I don't mean a blah, blah, blah anything. But it, it's um, he's still a filmmaker who's made many of my favorite films, yeah. even though it's not quite the same watching them. But uh, this really, really reminded me of Midnight in Paris, in which you are having the sense of nostalgia for your heroes, and kind of projecting that onto them and maybe realizing that nostalgia works kind of in those previous generations, too. Like, everybody romanticizes the past in a particular way. And it, I, I really like Boimler's arc here. And he actually came to the realization that maybe he shouldn't be romanticizing the past the same way that he had been doing before.
0: So I don't know. This is the, the film that this one reminded me more than anything else. That's a good call, actually. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like that moment, too, where they were kind of like geeking out over the NX-01 and talk about the grapplers I thought it was very interesting, though, that Hoshi and Mayweather were the two characters other than Archer that really got a shout-out. And it almost felt, in some ways, like kind of an apology for just how mm. mistreated those characters were. And clearly, the Kurtzman Trek had nothing to do with Enterprise whatsoever. But it just felt like kind of an acknowledgement of two characters that like, had promise that were completely ignored. But by kind of like reframing them in the eyes or through the eyes of this crew, kind of like elevated them to the icon status they kind of deserve? Well, I mean, Jonathan Frakes directed this episode, so maybe he
1: asked the writers to insert that in as his own apology for what he had to do with the uh, Enterprise series finale, These Are the Voyages.
0: (laughs) Speaking of which, uh, crossover episodes. Yeah, that is a crossover. Yeah, yeah. And I will post a link to our previous episode we did on crossovers. But do you recall, to the best of your memory, if Frakes ever directed Enterprise? I believe he, I, it, it, oh, gun to my head, yes, but
1: I can't yeah. necessarily recall an episode. So I, actually, it's kind of a 50-50 thing. I know Roxanne Dawson did. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. But I think he was still, and I think LeVar Burton did as well. And- That
0: rings a bell too.
1: Yeah. So I've got to believe that like Frakes has, I've, yeah, I, I, I think
0: I have to believe that Frakes has uh, directed an episode of Enterprise. Unless he was busy with the librarians at that point. I, I would have to sit there and look at timelines. I think it was a little bit afterwards, if I recall correctly. Okay. Yeah. I, I could be okay. mistaken, though. But, um, Frakes, I, I do want
1: to give a shout-out to his directing here. Um, Especially, I think my favorite shot... <laughs> this entire episode was that first person point of view shot of Boimler reaching for the captain's chair console. <laughs> and you hear yeah. Pike shout at him, Mr. Boimler. <laughs> it's just like, like that was just a like kind of amazing comedic beat there. And, um, I don't know. Uh, also, uh, even like <laughs> just a few minutes later, you know, Boimler's trying to make sure that the enterprise doesn't go to battle with the Orion, Uh, uh, science ship and he keeps going like you know look you're known for your patience your benevolence your really great hair and then Anson Mount's reaction to the really great hair comment was like (laughs) oh that was total chef's kiss right there
0: oh yeah Uh, Anson Mount was on fire in this episode I thought there was some, like, very clever and, like, fun little ways to kind of shake up the energy of this series just through, like, the camera work. Because you mentioned the POV and, like, the really, like, uh, comedic zooms to Spock's smile. It felt like a very, like, um <sighs> subtle's the wrong word, but it didn't feel like they were going over the top and trying to evoke kind of the madcap Lord X energy. They just found, like, playful little camera techniques to kind of, like, elevate what would normally be like, a standard type of energy you would get on Strange New Worlds. Like, it felt like they kind of found a good middle ground instead of just, like, having the camera just, like, slam-banging all over the place and making, um you know, Strange New Worlds just feel like a completely different show.
1: What was the broadest moment in this
0: one? Uh, was it the zoom in on Spock's teeth? It might be. That or maybe the Boimler screaming scene? Mm-hmm. Maybe?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, um, <laughs> one that still yeah. gets me is when... Was when uh, Mariner
1: told number one that uh, Boimler has a pinup poster and she's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to
0: know. (laughs) I was just like, (laughs) that was pretty great. And And when when she's like, are you saying it was a pinup? And she's like, it was pinned up. Dumb little things like um,
1: you know, like La'on asking what Domjot was and Mariner explaining mm. that's a billiards game that Nausicaans are terrible at, but they love to bet on for some reason. <laughs> it's like, that's a great episode, uh, or a great shout out to Tapestry, which is one of my favorite episodes of uh, Next Gen as well there. And Cam, when it comes to crossover episodes, is this the best one that we've got? Obviously, These Are the Voyages is not in the running, but um, yeah. <laughs> we, we've got like Emissary... We've got, I think it was Birthright Part Two, or was it? Um, mm-hmm. Or maybe it was it. Um, it's Part One. Okay, Part One. But then I'm thinking of uh, uh, Chain of Command Part Two, in which Quark is appears on screen, um, or like on the view screen, that is. And um, yeah,
0: what are there, like some of the other? Uh, I guess yeah, caretaker, if you will. Uh, you sure. Know. Um, well, then you've got like you know Trials and Tribulations and Flashback. Those are the other two.
1: Yeah, you know what? Okay, how does this stack up? First, I I think the real the only real competition is Trials and Tribulations. How does this stack up in terms of crossover episodes? Does this take the crown, or does it still, or does Trials still retain the crown at this point?
0: No, I just think Trials is pretty much a perfect episode. Yeah, and like as good as this is, as great as it even is, uh, it's not a perfect perfect episode like that is. Like that is just a textbook how to do this episode where their technical wizardry mixing it with like an incredibly like playful pretty plot-driven narrative that never feels like it's overwhelming the hijinks is like you know we saw them show that episode in vegas and talk about it, the akutas were on stage as well as some other people associated with the production of that one and it's like for a very light fun episode like that they talked about how much unbelievable work it was and it never feels like it it feels like that kind of carefree roger rabbit like miracle
1: okay okay so trials still got it for now um in terms of like lower decks episodes I'm thinking about the ones that would be my favorite at this point. I think you got Quality of Mercy, the season one finale. I think you've got Charades, which is episode five of season two. And I think you've got this one. Those are the top three for me. I, I It'd be kind of reductive to put them in some sort of order. But I, I think, you know, despite some of my critiques of season two, I, I still think it's delivered two of my favorite episodes of the series so far.
0: Yeah, like this would be my favorite episode of the season. Um, Charades would come at number two. To me, like the season one finale is probably my favorite episode of the series so far. But like this episode is in very good company. Yeah. Um I don't know that there's like it feels like I could do
1: like line after line, you know, of like mm-hmm. you know, like like perfect moments, but uh, Mariner geeking out on how hot Spock is in this particular timeline. <laughs> that was hilarious. Uh, Mariner complaining to Boimler in the meeting room. Um I thought you said they were cool. They are. This is serious. Like, that was a great line reading <laughs> from uh, Jack Quaid as well. Uh, you know,
0: like, like what else is jumping out uh, uh, to you from this one? The translation of Mariner, I thought, was very effective because Mariner on Lower Decks is something of an agent of chaos. Yeah. That is like <laughs> like a hyperactive, hyperkinetic character uh, in almost every episode you see her. And that was actually maybe my concern with bringing... I, I don't know that I was as concerned with Boimler on Strange New Worlds as much as Mariner, because I was just like, I don't know how you recreate that character with that same rapid-fire delivery and just, like, sheer abandon and not make it feel kind of weird. But I thought, like, Tawny Newsom also just found the perfect ground, and clearly the writers and the director and all of that sort of thing. Like, they just really figured out how to make Mariner a character that would be, like, effective in live action and feel like the Mariner we know without kind of, as, you know, I was kind of saying with Boimler earlier, falling prey to kind of like that human cartoon among humans.
1: I will have to say that her calling that planet Crumbhead D, uh, <laughs> it's such a <laughs> stupid joke, but it <laughs> made me laugh. Um, I like that. Okay, here's the thing that did annoy me, though. When Boimler exclaimed, Holy Q, and mm. then... Uh, we had Mariner explain, huh. like, uh, they haven't met Q yet. They have more of a Trillane thing going on. This is what annoyed me. Every single, like, Facebook post, it, it, like, at least, like, twice a week on all the different <laughs> groups, they're like, is Trillane a Q? And I'm just like, unless it says explicitly in the canon, like, the answer is always no. Trillane's Trillane. But now this reference is going to reignite that argument um, <laughs> nonstop. I'm just like, oh, really? This is going to be a brutal... I could always just, like, unfollow these Facebook groups, but whatever. I'm addicted.
0: Now, Tyler, I have some Star Trek novels you might oh, want yeah. to read. Th- thanks. Is it time for more camp fiction? It is summer vacation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah camp fiction. Summer vacation is the perfect time to catch up on your 30 year old Star Trek novels.
1: <laughs> um, oh, you know what? Also, Spock commenting on irony and when uh, yeah he's like it is surprising because she does not normally pay attention when uh we found out that it was mariner that was the one paying attention during the museum uh visit there (laughs) (laughs) like that was great and let me point this out okay so mariner mentioned a quarter life crisis thing um tawny newsom looks amazing she is 40 years old Mm -hmm. though is she going through a quarter life crisis and that like to me that says like you're in in, like your early to mid 20s though she is an ensign but um is she playing, uh, say,
0: 25, 26-year-old? Or do people in that era live to, like, 160? So true, <laughs> it would be, like, quarter-life.
1: Actually, you know, that is a very good point.
0: Because, like, Bones. How
1: old was Bones? Like, he was about 130, I think, when uh, we saw him there. And still kicking.
0: It wasn't like he was on his deathbed. Hey, hey, how old was Scotty when we met him in Relics? Well, that one, you got the whole Dyson <laughs> sphere thing. But uh, I'm trying to think. Is, okay, now you've, like, sent me down a journey here. Is bones the oldest like human character we've seen on star trek who was like a legacy figure like someone who you could kind of put that that dot as to just how old they were is Zephyr cochran Mm. the only competition there and i'm not talking
1: about the metamorphosis version uh i'm talking about the one that we saw kind of in a video in broken bow there would how old would he like it, it was a pre-recorded video, mm-hmm. and so Zefram Cochran, let's let's be generous. Let's say he was 55 in first contact. Does that sound right? That sounds generous, but yes. I think that's right. Generous, but yes. And then the launch was 100 years later. The NX-01 launch was 100 years later. Um, how old do you think he was when he recorded that video?
0: Like I'm kind of throned because he did not <laughs> look like the McCoy uh level age, yeah. where it's just like the heavy prosthetics and the deadliers basically. So, um he He must have been like eighty at
1: least, right? I think it was much older than eighty. Like I think it like timeline wise, I th- I think he was I think it was, was because weren't they saying like uh we pretty much conquered all of this sort of stuff on Earth? Like were they able to do that in like just twenty five years? Like that's pretty quick. I think he I, I think he was at least one hundred years old. hundred years or old. Where he was supposed okay. to be timeline wise. At least Like, because I think you would have to give it like fifty years for us to like um you know come together more as a united earth.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. Did they ever give an age to Picard at his oldest in um Inner Light? <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Sixty-five. Okay, fair enough.
1: He doesn't do well in the sun. Yeah, yeah. It's climate change. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, I think it's got to be McCoy. I think I think it's McCoy. Um, except for Data's old head. But um, yeah. So like, I I think that (laughs) uh, human, human. Yeah, yeah, human. Um, I think that actually, how old do you think um Doctor Soong is when we see him in um, Brothers? Oh, that's. An excellent question, because he looked like an old dinosaur. Um, and he has a 70-year-old son um, <laughs> when we <laughs> meet him
1: in um, Picard season one, which would have been, what, 30 years later? Yeah. So he would have had a, a 40-year-old son at that time. Um, right.
0: Hmm. I still they, think he was quite old. He was very old. Like, he's in that McCoy yeah. uh, batting category there. Yeah. So... He had a son when he was, like, 90? <laughs> I guess so. Hey, look. Fertility treatment in uh, that era, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I am willing to go, though, now that I think about it, that, like, Mariner uh, is 40, but 160 is the uh, okay potential end of life. Yeah, I can go with that. Again, Tawny Newsome.
1: Uh, the fact that she's, like... 40 is amazing. Like, she looks like the, she's, like, in her 20s. So she's still pulling it off as, as Mariner, even if she's supposed to be an ensign in her 20s there. I have a
0: photo with her that I took in Vegas uh, last year, and I look like the bad guy at the end of Last Crusade. Uh, I am withering away <laughs> next to her.
1: <laughs> um, I, I actually think it's even funnier if Mariner is, in fact, 40, and
0: she's still an ensign. It, it does. You know? It just means, like, Yeah. It kind of plays up how much more of a mess she is than we even picked up on initially.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Tawny Newsom, if I'm wrong about the age and all that sort of stuff, I would like to apologize to you with a limerick.
0: <laughs> I thought there was a fun in-joke near the end of this episode in the animated section um, where they had Ransom comment on... Una being, like, the hottest, uh, like, oh, yeah. bridge officer or whatever he said, senior officer. Because, of course, in real life, uh, Jerry O'Connell is married to Rebecca Romaine. I thought that was a fun little joke they worked in there. It was also very fun just to see the uh, Enterprise crew in animation for a couple minutes.
1: It was interesting. Um, I will say that um, uh, Anson Mount, um, was he nearly as tickled by his uh, illustration as maybe the other actors were? And like, Anson <laughs> Mount looked like...
0: He was supposed to be like 75 or something. <laughs> is it possible to translate the awesomeness of Anson Mount to animation? I'm not sure it is.
1: You just do Johnny Bravo, but mm. give him like a, more of a grayish kind of silver fox sort of look there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, oh, I guess we can't. Can we ask Anson Mount about that this summer? I'm confused. It is animation, so I'm not sure. I, actually, that's a good point. Um, yeah. It's a live action show, but it's animation. <laughs>
1: let, let let's test the waters. Let's sure. test the waters. We'll be the ones. What's the worst that Yeah, are, are they, they're not going to kick us out of the convention, right?
0: <laughs> it would be amazing if they did. It would make for a hell of a story.
1: <laughs> they're holding you by like the back of your belt and the the back of your shirt and it's like and then they take me out with, you know, the um those uh like spring-driven like punching uh gloves, you know, like uh, to knock me <laughs> off the stage like
0: and we talked previously about, like, uh, you know, uncomfortable, like, border experiences of being interrogated, and this would be worse. <laughs> the The creation back <laughs> office. Oh, boy. You don't want to go there, folks. <laughs> no. No, I've heard stories. Uh, yeah.
1: Okay. Well, beyond requiring grid... Um, there <laughs> well, lots of funny stuff that I absolutely loved in this episode, but, uh, other stuff we can, uh, dive into Cam with San Diego Comic-Con. Okay. So of course, like our whole release schedule got kind of messed up mm-hmm. because of, uh, San Diego Comic-Con in which they released those old scientists, um, earlier than expected, about five days earlier. So we're like, oh man, we got to jump on this now, get sure, make sure it's, uh, out this week. And so, what that means is we will still record under the Cloak of War on our usual Thursday evenings, have that out by Sunday. But, Camp, Sunday morning, you and I are taking off for Vegas for the Star Trek convention. Yeah. So, we will have Cloak of War run um, next week. We will, but we will be taking a bye week after that. But we will be coming back. Uh, with both our Vegas recap and then we'll do a separate episode covering the last two episodes of um, uh, Strange New Worlds which will be uh, Subspace Rhapsody. Glad that they're finally honoring Subspace Transmissions with an episode entirely devoted to us <laughs> and uh, Hegemony. And I think just based on the name of the uh, the episode I, I'm guessing that's going to be kind of a, a Gorn episode uh, to kind of uh, do the season finale with.
0: Yeah, which kind of answers our uh, ponderings from I think it was the last week's episode where we were debating when the Gorn would appear. Would it be too obvious having it in the finale? But it would seem, nope, we're sticking with the finale with that one. Yeah,
1: so uh, that's our, our, um, you know, uh, basic framing right now for our scheduling. Things are open to change because, of course, (laughs) definitely things changed with the release of Those Old Scientists so early. Um, But then after we do, you know, two episodes in one week, uh, again, uh, upon returning from Vegas, I think we'll take another bye week So, folks you are getting just as much content from us. It just means that uh, there will be some breaks in between, longer than usual breaks, though. But, um, Cam, obviously San San Diego Comic-Con happened. Uh, We got uh, a clip from uh, Subspace Rhapsody. I I haven't watched it. I I I know the gist of it. Yeah. I don't want to spoil it for anybody else that um, maybe doesn't know about it. I'll leave it there. But the the gist of it, um, are you intrigued? Are you excited? Are you worried?
0: Without spoilers. I would say... If this were a different season of Strange New Worlds, I would be very excited for this episode. I'm a little nervous now, just coming off of those old scientists having that episode like two, like separated by just like one episode between the two of them. I'm like, right. the bar has been set very high, and if you know this uh, lower decks crossover could go wrong that episode could go wrong and i i'm nervous like because we had like a real home run on this one that like that one is going to be <laughs> some challenging podcasting for us i hope not i hope it's a just an absolute delight i did watch the trailer i'm not going to say anything too much about it other than it did a good job advertising what the episode is without showing you pretty much anything really about it i'll say that much in terms of um you know, I'll give compliments to um, Decent Marketing when I see it, and I thought it was Decent Marketing, but um, it, it's kind of for that reason. It's like, to me, you kind of want to have, like, one kind of wildly ambitious episode a season, and the fact they're doing two is, well, I mean, I just hope they have lots of other crazy ideas for future seasons. Okay, okay. I'm Look, I'm down for it. I will keep an open mind, <laughs> um,
1: and if, it, look... I, I don't mind if they take risks and they don't always work. Elysian Kingdom did not work, but mm-hmm. I, I I'd rather the show that takes the risks rather the than the show that just keeps it vanilla all the time because when you're making when you're trying to do something for everybody, you make something for nobody whatsoever. Um, one thing I should point out about uh, those old scientists though is that uh, it was forty seven minutes long. I was gonna say I think it benefited for, from having a shortened uh, runtime, very much so, and I wonder if subspace Rhapsody. I wonder if, um, by design, it needs a longer runtime, or maybe it's going to benefit and uh, from, or maybe even practically, it'll need a shorter runtime as well. So we'll find that out in about. Uh, well, actually, I don't know when are you going to be watching that episode because we'll be on the road. Like even after like Vegas, you and I's you and I're taking a road trip from like Vegas to California to Oregon to Washington State back up to British Columbia. So um, it it might be a a hot minute before we get a chance to watch. Uh, Subspace Rhapsody.
0: Yeah, uh, we'll see if I think we'll probably watch one of the Strange New Worlds episodes in Vegas. I'm sure someone will have a laptop or something we'll watch it on. I don't know about the finale I don't though. We'll one... watch it on a laptop. <laughs> fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. That's depressing. Yeah, okay, that's fair. Um, but uh yeah, I, I suspect that uh, the finale at least we'll have to wait till we get home. Um one thing I noted was It's interesting to have three episodes left. And I feel like next week's episode, Under the Cloak of War, is the only one I don't know what to expect from. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of marks like the last kind of mystery episode of the season. Because the last two, I have a pretty strong sense as to what they are. I did see like a publicity shot of this one. But it wasn't like
1: some ginormous spoiler or anything like that. Sure. So I'm like, okay. It kind of gives me more of an idea what at least one element that might be in this one. I'm like, okay, okay, that's interesting. I, I, just to go backwards a little bit, you and I and a group of us, we did watch um, the season three finale of Lower Decks a premiere. on a on a MacBook last summer. Mm-hmm. I thought that was totally fine. I think it's just kind of a different thing, like for, like an animated show on like a 12-inch screen. I can kind of wrap my head around that versus seeing whatever is meant to hit our screens uh, with Subspace Rhapsody. And I think it kind of deserves maybe the uh, the bigger screen experience there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the optimal way to watch it, but I can't say given the spirit of Vegas and Trek that it's not going to happen, especially with people feeling maybe a dearth of Star Trek <laughs> from the panels with the actors. Uh, we'll see. We'll see.
1: If somebody can set up some sort of screening, I'm not saying like some official screening in one of the convention ballrooms, but like there's got to be people talking. Like remember there was that one time where we were at a convention in San Francisco and we were able to hook up like a laptop to the hotel room um, TV screen and yeah, we were... Uh, is Choose Your Pain, I recall. that We, we ended up watching Choose Your Pain uh, mm-hmm. on the hotel uh, TV there. So I, I wonder if somebody's got the uh, technical know-how to pull that off um, somewhere in that hotel filled with Trekkies, who I'm sure there's there got to be a couple that know how to do that. It just, can we get
0: invited to, to that viewing party? <laughs> that party will be happening like right next door and they're just going to be having the time of their lives and we'll be like watching it on, on an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I camp. <laughs> would would we even want to be invited to a party and watch? there's a good chance a lot of people will be talking over what's going on
0: no not at all not at all that's never a good idea i, know. I don't really believe that much in watch parties now i will say to be fair to our group we watched the the premiere of strange new worlds uh, or, uh lower deck season three uh everyone was uh very respectful and we all watched it quietly and laughed at the you know the funny parts but i i've been to other things where people are watching something as a group and uh it's not my favorite experience.
1: No, no. Uh I we, I think remember when uh season 4 of Arrested Development came out and then we did have like a watch party at my old old place yep. and uh it was actually like um it was pretty easy pe- pretty respectful like kind of the group. I think there were like 5 of us there. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty respectful group there. Although maybe uh, maybe the season four laughs in Arrested Development were not coming uh, as rapid fire <laughs> as those first three
0: seasons, and that made it easier. There was a lot of quiet contemplation. <laughs> uh, okay. It was a sobering evening. Um.
1: <laughs> um what else? So oh, yeah, San Diego Comic Con. We also found out there's a like a, what like a five minute clip from uh, season five of Discovery, um, mm-hmm. presumably the um, season premiere, and Cam. I, it it made me mad. It made me angry. It was everything I've been complaining about Discovery since season three. It's um, it's I I used to like the show a lot, hmm. and just watching Burnham yet again turn into a superhero with a messiah complex, and it was on full display there, and just uh, the way that they are treating her as if she's ascending into this godlike character is so frustrating to me. And I don't find it very interesting either. And so I guess that's what we're looking forward to in season five. You and I, uh, we're definitely going to do the, uh, the the season premiere, and we're definitely going to do the series finale on its own. I think we might have to do clusters, yet like pods of episode reviews like we did last season. Um,
0: but I don't know. I, 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 I I'll go in with an open mind as I did last season. There's something about it, too, that just has a little bit of a vibe of, like, we're having so much fun. This show is so much fun this season. Like, we are just going on an adventure, guys, and we're having fun. It feels like your parents trying to convince you that something's fun when it's kind of not that much fun, yeah. or at least doesn't look like that much fun. And I'm just just judging, you know, like, marketing materials. I'm not judging the overall show because I haven't seen it. Maybe when it actually plays out, I'll be like, oh, my God, this is the discovery I wish I was getting you know, for season three, for example. Uh, that's what I'm crossing my fingers for. I, I just, like... I keep asking myself... Do they learn any lessons from Discovery? Is there any sense that, like... Internally, people realize that, like... Season four was, like... <laughs> running in place for, like, 15 episodes. Do, or 13 episodes. It was a slog. It yeah. Was a slog. Like, do they realize that, like, it was not engaging? Or that, like, season three was a mess? I, I really have no idea it's the sort of thing I think one day later on down the road some book will be written kind of like the you know the the 50-year mission books like the oral history or something where they'll talk about probably behind the scenes information on Discovery and Picard and what have you but it's going to be a long time till we get that material and I just there's nothing I see that makes me think they really learned something from the last season
1: I Like, I suspect there are people in the writing room that are aware of the flaws of the show. But I also think there's maybe leadership in the writing room that kind of um, would prefer to lean in to those elements that might otherwise be frustrating from a viewer perspective. Look, there's mm-hmm. enough fans commenting on this video to say, like, can't wait. Oh my God, this is amazing! Mm-hmm. And I genuinely believe that these fans like this stuff. Yeah. But I also believe, compared to like the sheer number of those fans versus uh, people uh, loving TNG thirty years ago, it's it's a much smaller number of people that this show appeals to. And I'm not talking about the fact that we have a uh, a woman of color in the lead. Uh, Burnham was my favorite character in season one. Um, her character has completely changed into something else since season one, and I just, I, I, it doesn't work for me, and I find it uh, incredibly pretentious, and this is just not the show I signed up for, and uh, this is why we don't want to torture ourselves by doing like weekly reviews. The best torture we ever had was Picard season two because yeah. that show was so insane. That we uh, can I, me being able to talk to you about how deranged that show was just from a storytelling perspective, um, that made the season for me. But I can't talk about uh, Discovery in that way. All I can talk about is how boring it is. And like, that's not interesting to me.
0: That's the thing. It doesn't introduce like fun elements to really talk about. And that's something like when I'm just even like, you know, this episode, like I've got a full page of notes in front of me. And I remember doing like some of those Discovery season four episodes and having like eight notes because there was just like nothing really to comment on because it was so plot based. It was just characters giving exposition. You had double the notes I had. (laughs) It was just exposition about what they needed to do to solve the problem of the episode. But there was nothing, there was no character moments. There was nothing to kind of extrapolate from. It was all just kind of like, yep, we are going from A to B to C credits and we're gonna do the same thing next week and the same thing next week because we've got to stretch out this mystery and it just didn't it didn't provide a whole lot of conversation fodder
1: guess what cam there is a macguffin and they're gonna follow that macguffin they'll resolve that macguffin and then there will be a few minutes left at the end of the series finale to wrap up all the character dynamics there because the thing is that discovery is not known for Given a lot of pace or given a lot of slack in terms of wrapping things up, it's just like it, it's bang bang bang. Actually, no, it's it's drag it out for an entire season and then wrap
0: things up way too quickly in the uh, finale. Does the MacGuffin reveal the hiding place of Tarka by the end of the season? That's my question. And uh, yeah, that's the next spinoff right there: the search for Tarka. Yeah, <laughs> or is this called Starka Trek?
1: <laughs> Starka, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and again, yeah, I don't think it's fun for um, listeners to listen to us just drag on a show. Um, sorry if you liked uh, Picard season two; um, that was fun <laughs> for you and me to drag yeah. on that show. But uh, and I think maybe the listeners knew that we we're having fun dragging on that show. We were not having fun dragging on Discovery in season four, though. Like that—that's the key difference, though.
0: No, because the difference was to me, I really did enjoy seasons one and two of Discovery. There was issues, and we definitely uh, highlighted some of them when we were reviewing them. But it really disappointed me going into seasons three and four because of how invested I was in those first two. Whereas like Picard season one, uh, not great, not great, Bob. And so when it came to like two, it was more just like holy smokes, like we've really gone off a cliff from uh, a pretty mediocre yeah. first season. I wasn't invested because they hadn't given me a lot to invest in. Whereas Discovery. I mean, it'll probably go down as my most, like, disappointing Star Trek show, where I really feel like it just lost me. And that has not happened with any other show.
1: Yeah, you know, um, I guess we'll have to do, like, a a, a, well, a follow-up episode to our uh, series finale rankings. But it'll be interesting in, like, how this ultimately tracks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just kind of the legacy of Discovery. There are still ardent fans out there. But, Kim, I just know, just in terms of the the pop culture buzz, how often this is brought up on all the pop culture TV podcasts I listen to versus Strange New Worlds or Lower Decks. And the thing is, uh, I haven't heard people talking about Discovery since very, very early on in the run of Season 3. And I mean very early on. And that's kind of sad.
0: It means people don't care anymore. It is. I am really curious how much coverage they get for the finale because it is, you know, the first of the flagship uh, Kurtzman Trek shows and you would think in theory there would be a certain amount of writing being done about the series finale. I'll be curious if that actually comes to pass. Um I think there will be a push
1: from the studio publicists mm-hmm. to get that conversation going, but it has to be organic. Like and I just don't know if people care. Like if people organically care, <laughs> except for you and me.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because you're asking people who have, you know, checked out of covering the show or talking about the show to invest themselves in a season, like, after they've been checked out for years. Like, uh, yeah. uh, good luck. <laughs> good luck. Yeah.
1: Um. Okay, Cam. And, and, and uh, there's some little tidbits coming up, uh, you know, San Diego Comic-Con. Do, you know, there's some, like, animated shorts that will be seen, I suppose. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on that?
0: I'm actually excited about these. These are just, like, little shorts that are going to honor the 50th anniversary of the original animated series. They revealed that Armin Shimmerman and Jonathan Frakes, and I'm sure more guest stars, will be lending their voices to this uh, little project. I'm sure they'll be very minor in the schemes of Star Trek content, but there's something that, like, as a fan of the original animated series... I'm really looking forward to and I'm just praying. I've seen, you know, some of the artwork. It looks really fun, but I'm praying that like the actors who come to work on these little shorts bring the same level of energy as Shatner and Nimoy because to me, <laughs> that is what completes the illusion. You can make fun yeah. of it and dismiss the show for that lack of energy, but that is the animated series. That's what makes it special. <laughs>
1: I I think that'd be amazing, but there's no way they would do that. Like, that's the problem. It's like, it's kind of like a, a a self-respect sort of thing. And and you know, it's like Frakes would not do that, you know, and I think Armin Shimmerman takes himself too seriously as an actor. Mm -hmm. Like he would not do that either, which you know, like, I think what you're talking about is absolutely hilarious, but it, (laughs) you're not going to convince the actors.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, maybe for the uh, 75th anniversary, we can make that happen. (laughs)
1: yes arvin <laughs> will he won't even know where he is <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah um yeah. barbenheimer weekend we did barbenheimer weekend uh this past weekend uh we started things off with oppenheimer we caught it at uh 70 millimeters at the park theater in uh, vancouver uh which is a uh, very cool atmosphere walking in um almost entirely sold out except for some of those like crappy seats at the very side front row there uh we followed that up on sunday evening with a uh, barbie at a sold out show there which cam uh i was not expecting it i thought i was going to be one of the cool kids walking in with my hawaiian shirt with some pink flowers on it what would you say at least two-thirds of the crowd dressed in pink there
0: oh they were there to party
1: yeah, and uh, Cam, you were you're dressed like you're going to an Evanescence concert
0: or something. Like, <laughs> I was like, "Will someone bring me to life?" <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: but uh, I don't know, Cam. I like, like you know, um, I had my issues with Oppenheimer. Mm. Um, uh, I I loved Barbie. I thought this was like such a fun kind of uh, marketing. <laughs> push that went on and it worked on me it's kind of a cool thing um i'm a total sucker uh yeah th- 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 it's great to be a lover of cinema and be involved in something like this and i had a fun weekend doing this and um i'll say this uh we won't do any spoilers or anything like this um i was absolutely mesmerized and captivated by the first two hours of Oppie, um like uh many other folks the uh, that that final hour it, it is a bit of a grind for me. Um, you know, I came out of there. You could see I was frustrated. I was taking it out on you and your sister. And um,
0: I thought it was a bit much when you put your fist through the uh, poster on the wall of the theater.
1: <laughs> no, I, I went and burned the seventy millimeter reel. <laughs> uh,
0: decapitated the Gillian Murphy uh, cardboard stand-up. Yeah,
1: but um, Cam, I I, I kind of like. There's, like, uh, one of my favorite film critics uh, Matt, and, and television critics, uh, Matt cites. like, he said something a couple of years ago in a podcast I was listening to, and he said, it's not so much whether I like something, it's whether I find it interesting, and that's always stuck in my head, because what happened, Cam, and you can attest to this, the rest of the evening, I'm sending you and Janine messages about, like, oh, look at the historical connections between this and that, like, Obviously, this movie, as frustrating as I found the last hour, it got stuck in my head, and I spent the, the entire weekend just kind of thinking about this movie. So, I, again, not so much whether I liked the movie. I Overall, I did like the movie, despite um, <laughs> how frustrating I found that third hour and uh mesmerized by a lot of the technical aspects of it of course i think killian murphy and robert downey jr were absolutely amazing in this mm-hmm. and um just even a lot of the smaller roles that you got to see here just like the people were bringing it um so uh, overall, uh, like uh, uh, I-, I came out of there and I said to you, Cam, I don't think I'm ever going to watch this movie again. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm going to watch it again. I was like, really? <laughs> and um, <laughs> I've kind of come around um, I- I- like I-, I-, I will watch this again. Like because I- the problem is I've been thinking about this movie too much, even if it's a
0: movie I found uh, frustrating, uh, at-, at least by the final hour of it. It's interesting with Oppenheimer and that like those first two hours are like a high and it's just unbelievable Nolan's ability to. Um I mean in this case we've kind of he's kind of perfected his triple prong editing approach of like bouncing between three different timelines simultaneously and yet somehow keeping it very coherent and he he cuts very quickly. I couldn't stop noticing that was that like I know like Nolan has talked about being like a big fan of say like the Transformers films and Michael Bay's filmmaking and you can see the way that like Nolan is just like cutting faster and faster and somehow like managing to make something that's like coherent to an audience and I find that um, like astonishing as an achievement, and I just found the movie so immersive for that reason. It just really drew me in, and there's like almost like Terrence Malick-like touches throughout the movie, and I just was very happy that people showed up to see it in droves because it gives me a little bit of encouragement that like if you make a movie <laughs> about a uh, you know physicist that's three hours long, that people will show up of all ages if it's good. And or at least promises to be something they're gonna enjoy, and I think like that's very encouraging. And I I know exactly what you mean. Like the last hour does have a real energy shift, but I have found it so strange that like in the time since I've seen it, I have thought just endlessly about the last hour and so many of the character journeys, so many of the moments there. You mentioned Downey Jr. I mean that's when he really comes to life, big time. Um, Jason Clark has really, for some reason, <laughs> leaped to the forefront of my mind. I've been thinking so much about Jason Clark's material in the last hour. And also, like, Emily Blunt, who really has, like, a show-stopping scene. Uh, so this movie, like, to me, it just was like... I find with Nolan movies, I would never say I walk out of them unsatisfied. But I do walk out kind of, like, overwhelmed to a degree. And it's often the second time where I'm able to kind of, like go in properly adjusted to the wavelength he's going to hit. Because I usually find he, he delivers something that's kind of atypical for what you would normally get for mainstream films. And just in terms of like the overall, you know, Barbie Oppenheimer success, these two movies simultaneously, this doesn't happen if they're both not good. This requires like people walking out satisfied. If you had Oppenheimer released and people said this is a leaden bore that is a chore to sit through. You do not have this craze like going through the entire weekend. Maybe for Friday. Well, there there are some people saying that Cam. Sure, sure. Uh, but there's there's people that probably are walking out of Barbie unhappy too. But like overall, you know, you look at the reviews on both and it's like these are you know movies that both had, you know, A cinema scores and very high audience ratings coming out of these you know experiences is kind of a fluke in that you I don't think you could engineer something like this that had that momentum over the course of a weekend if they both didn't deliver to audiences.
1: Well, let me ask you this. Do you think Oppenheimer, which is a historical drama, uh, three hours long, would it have earned just as much on this weekend if not for the Barbenheimer effect? If not for this kind of organic marketing push that these two separate studios ended up finding themselves in
0: i don't think it makes as much because i think it became this kind of like you have to go see these two movies and it became this online thing that would be very appealing i think to like a, a younger demographic i think Oppenheimer's going to do quite well just because nolan has such a built-in audience for people showing up but i feel like it's a movie and you and i do a box office wager uh and we didn't rank oppenheimer highly at all In our rankings, I think you put it on your top 10 and I put it in my Dark Horses. Um, But I I think it's a movie that like the way I expected it would be, you know, kind of like, I don't know, like a 40 million opening, 45 million. And then it just kind of plays for a long time because it's not the type of movie that is a must-see opening weekend. You'd get older crowds showing up over the course of the summer. That's what I expected. I didn't expect this kind of like flurry of people running. And I think it is kind of that Barbenheimer effect. Yeah. So um, you followed up on Saturday
1: watching Sound of Freedom, and then... Um... <laughs> I bought out three theaters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, listeners were joking Cam did not go see Sound of Freedom. Um uh and um but then we followed up on sunday with uh with barbie cam that was one of the best crowds i like i've been in 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 like a long time just like especially post-pandemic it was just everybody was into that movie Mm -hmm. so so cam a couple weeks ago you and i saw joyride i'm kind of disappointed like that that film which was incredibly funny and it was my my favorite comedy of the year up until barbie um it just didn't do much business which is a bummer but um you know barbie took it away though and i i think it uh, had even more laughs for me and it was a lot of like clever jokes in barbie and a lot of just like kind of dumb jokes (laughs) that i got a kick Mm -hmm. out of um people are talking a lot about ryan gosling i i I think margot robbie's getting a little bit like overlooked here like i I thought she was fantastic and like her comedic timing is so great and she's such an amazing anchor for this film as well. Uh, but I, I, I'm i sorry, like you still got to give it up for Ryan Gosling in, in just what he was able to do in like um, make this a character that you're still interested in, mm-hmm. in, in, in terms of Ken. And the thing, I, I walked to the theater, the thing I had to point out to you is like... Uh, between um uh, ryan gosling uh michael Sarah and simu lu uh, why is the most prominent members of barbie land's male population they're all canadians which i know is kind <laughs> of uh is there a message there no probably not but um the one, the one thing i do want to bring up and i i, I kind of touched on this with you though but um like ryan gosling was so good and he threw himself into this role so much yeah you know that he's a funny guy you you aren't able to accomplish this without being a genuinely funny person. But he's always try to build like this aura about him of being like a super serious actor, you know? Like he does that fake Marlon Brando accents that uh, you know, people have like remarked upon. He's a Canadian, you know, then nobody talks like that in Ontario. Mm-hmm. So um it's just like it, it kind of it kind of takes away a little bit from the the Gosling mystique mistake because he's also an amazing dramatic actor too. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I just I kinda of, I don't know these are actors they're um complicated people but I just hope that uh Gosling's very willing to maybe you know the older you get I think the more people are willing to kind of loosen up even if it's their public persona as well so I I don't know I, I just want to give a shout out to him he was great but honestly like you needed Margot Robbie in the role of Barbie for this one to ultimately work
0: yeah no I agree and I think like the success of this one is just the world building and just pure vision of um Of Greta Gerwig to pull this off because yeah, all these actors are game, but they are not all on the same page. If you don't have a director who knows exactly what they're doing and I was astonished at not just like the production design of this movie, but like her ability to shoot musical sequences like I love watching like old Gene Kelly musicals and things like that. It's so frustrating how badly directed a lot of musical sequences are in movies starting kind of in the 80s moving forward. And her ability to, like, just do these, like, show-stopping musical numbers. I'm like, give this woman a full-length musical, please. I would happily watch this. And I think the movie works best, yeah, when it's, like, really having some very clever, incisive, like, gender commentary or social commentary. Uh, And then there are, like, just, like, the the really fun, goofy jokes. There was a few elements that felt a little shaggy to me, especially towards the back end of the movie. Um, But, like... There's something about just like the spirit of the movie that is so winning that I, I just like you got to give it up for. I just it's the kind of movie that could have gone wrong a billion ways, and it could have come across as cynical because you are ultimately making a movie (laughs) about a you know toy line uh, that is um, you know produced by Mattel in this case, but it just feels like it's the right type of clever, the right type of satire, and a movie that at the same time wears its heart on its sleeve. And I think that like younger, you know, girls and stuff, like this would be a movie if I had a daughter, I would be really excited to show her. And I I, I would like to hear more, honestly, people of that kind of age talk to me about this movie than, well, myself, a 42-year-old man talking about this movie.
1: But I don't you think it's such a much more difficult task to create, like, an earnest character in which they are compelling and they are going through these journeys versus, like, I, as much as I love, you know, say the Sopranos or Breaking Bad, mm. you can go dark, you know, and you can put people in very... Uh, you know, the testing situations and watch them. You know, make the worst decisions possible. You know, like I'm not saying that it's easy to write The Sopranos or Breaking Bad. Not, not at all. But I, I think it is a very challenging thing. It's almost like the Pike thing. You know, he has to be a very earnest character, and I think they were doing that with Archer. But I don't quite think they landed it the same way that yeah. they have with Pike and in making that such an
0: earnest character as well. Well, it's like the Captain America thing, right? Like. Marvel made that look easy, and then you've seen movies since where they've tried to do this kind of earnest superhero, and it just kind of falls flat, or it's boring, and so it scares people away from doing that sort of thing, and yeah, it's like you need someone, whether it is a Margot Robbie, a Chris Evans, a Christopher Reeve, if you go back to the old Superman movies, to really make that magnetic, and yeah, they pull it off in Barbie. I'll be curious, like, what the future of this franchise is. Like, Greta Gerwig has signed up to do two Chronicles of Narnia films for Netflix. Like, is she interested in doing follow-ups? Or is this going to be a case where it's like, she moves on to other things, and I'm now thinking about, like, the Lego movie, where you had, like, the original, which was, like, a beloved movie that Lord and Miller uh, directed. And then, like, they just did sequels kind of without them, more or less, that failed to capture that magic. Like, are we just destined to have Barbie sequels directed by people other than Greta Gerwig? Well, I will point out that uh, Lego Batman was
1: pretty awesome, so maybe we get yep. Lego Barbie Batman
0: at some point. Oh, well. Yeah, we'll we'll see about that.
1: <laughs> Actually, look, the the the, the uh, Batgirl movie was canceled. Mm-hmm. Uh they shelved it uh, for a tax break. So maybe we get uh uh Batwoman Barbie. Maybe that's what they do.
0: I don't know that I would be excited for that, but uh if it's as good as this one, then yeah, sure, sign me up. <laughs> Cam, I am a marketing genius. You must recognize that. <laughs> Did you hear... There's the new Saw movie coming out this Halloween, right? I like that nice segue from Barbie to Saw. Well, no, it, <laughs> Very smooth. Okay. It is related. <laughs> I, I promise you that. So there's a new Saw movie coming out this Halloween. And the same weekend, I believe it's opening up against Paw Patrol. And they're trying to start Saw Patrol. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not going to be part of that. Yeah. That, I, I want no part of that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, you know, okay. One question I wanted to ask: We're going back to um, those old scientists. I um, Apologize for, yeah, I was making fun of you for segways. This is not uh, pretty at all. Um, how does this episode work for broader viewership of strange new worlds that have another has that have never
0: bothered to tune in to Lower Decks before? I mean, I can only give the anecdotal evidence that my sister, who has never watched Lower Decks, really loved this episode. Uh, It may even inspire her to watch Lower Decks. I'm not sure yet. I haven't talked to her in person about it. But I suspect it would work because the energy is so infectious. And if you love the characters of Strange New Worlds, you're getting to see them in funny situations. It's kind of like if you were a fan of TNG, you know, you watch that episode with Rasmussen that you mentioned earlier. It's kind of a funny episode to watch the characters... Bounce off of Rasmussen. I think this episode would, would work in that same kind of way.
1: Is Boimler the main character of this episode? I would say so, yeah. And I wonder what that means for audiences that aren't familiar with Boimler from Lower Decks. It kind of brings us back to a different era of TV writing. You know, in the first two seasons of TNG, most of the episodes centered on like the guest star of the week, you know? And so mm-hmm. that's a bit of a throwback. It might be disconcerting, but um, maybe if I can like, um, Kind of a fine tune that that bad segue that I made. Uh, is this a good marketing push to get some folks into Lower Decks? Is this episode strong enough that they'd be like, you know what, I'm intrigued by these wacky time travelers. Uh, let me jump over to Lower Decks at least give it a shot or give it another try if maybe the first
0: couple episodes didn't work for me at the time. I I do think this is a hell of a marketing push for Lower Decks because it's a show that it's been around longer than Strange New Worlds, but I just don't know that it it has like the fanfare. Well, it doesn't have the fanfare that Strange New Worlds does, and it deserves, I think, more eyeballs on it. Hopefully this works. Um, they probably should have done a Prodigy crossover maybe a little earlier. <laughs> save save that, yeah. Okay, well, uh, that's kind of Maybe sad. the <laughs> Discovery finale?
1: <laughs> sure, <laughs> yeah. So I guess on that bummer of a notes.
0: Yeah. Uh, we'll be back uh, this upcoming Sunday with a review of the episode Under the Cloak of War. Uh, as I said, I'm looking forward to this one because I don't know what it's about. So that is exciting. And uh, you can, of course, leave a review for us wherever you get your podcast. We would very much appreciate it. You can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V in Vibrant Spock Smiles Smith. You can find me at Reporton, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N,
1: N -N, as in Numera Una.
0: Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Summer vacation is the perfect time to catch up on your 30-year-old Star Trek novels. (laughs) (laughs)